the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. The nation that, for those of us that perhaps are over over 50, wonder what's happened to our country. And uh, wanting to, at one level, engage in the fight to make America a Christian nation again. And yet, on the other hand, maybe being compelled to ask an even more important question. And that is, how can we, right where we live and work and play and engage, do a better job of engaging the culture all around us? There was a time and an age when you had to get on an airplane with a passport and travel to another part of the world to engage in the mission field. And today, the mission field is literally right out your front door, almost anywhere you live in America, and certainly anywhere in the San Francisco Bay Area. So what of this idea of living missionally right where you live today? Well, we've invited... Jim Ramsey, the Vice President of Mission Ministries at the Mission Society, to join us with some insights uh, to that very question. And Jim, a delight to have you on the program. It's good to be here. First, I'm curious about your own journey. You left high-tech for the mission field. I understand you and your family spent uh, 10 years as missionaries in Kazakhstan, and that's uh, that's quite a transition. Yes, it was. Um, we, we felt called to mission from, from an earlier age, so it wasn't like a, a major you know, sudden surprise to us. We always knew we wanted to serve, but the Lord had provided the IT work as something I could do while I was preparing, working through seminary, and we were starting our family. But it was a change. We uh, were in our early 30s when we when we moved from uh, small-town Kentucky to a city in Central Asia in the country of Kazakhstan and served there for 10 years. And, of course, now you're here uh, back in the U.S. and serving as vice president of uh, Mission Ministries with the Mission Society, as we mentioned. And uh, your your background, I think, as a missionary qualifies you in many ways, uh, Jim, uniquely to help us better understand and address this question because, as I suggested, it wasn't that many generations ago when engaging in missions work to other people and cultures and society in places that were very different of us meant getting a passport, hopping on an airplane, and heading overseas. And today, that large largely means getting up and going to work in the morning, doesn't it? No doubt. I think that, uh, that missions has really become from everywhere to everywhere, and that people can, can be involved in mission wherever they are, and I think uh, in some ways that's a positive. We still will always be people who will get on a plane and go, because uh, there's some places in the world that will never hear the gospel if somebody doesn't do that, because there's nobody around. But having said that, uh, we all know, I, I think you have to be in a cocoon uh, to not realize there are incredible needs and opportunities for sharing the gospel here in our own home country. 
Let's talk about attitudes concerning that very issue. I mean, there is a certain notion that believers have that we, we should live in such a fashion as we, we share our faith, we share the evangel or the, or the gospel with others. Uh, and yet, at least through the decade of the, the 80s and 90s, and, and maybe even to a certain degree today, um, a lot of uh, Christians um, do a good job at expressing our frustration over what we see going on in our culture and society today. You witnessed the news story that I shared um, at the top of the segment here. Uh, and we do a good job at that, and yet um, maybe our experience or our, our capacity to share our frustration is better honed than our capacity to actually share our faith. And again, at the end of the day, the question is, which of the two will have the greater impact on society around us, sharing our frustration or sharing our faith? I think you really hit on the, the crucial issue that I think the American church and the evangelical church in particular really is facing. I shared a story uh, in an article I wrote recently that, that really points this out. It was some years ago. We were still in Kazakhstan serving, and I had a, a friend who was on the faculty of a, of a small liberal arts college in the East here. And it was a college with a great Christian tradition, but like so many colleges, it kind of wandered from that tradition in the, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And he asked this question. I mean, they were about to engage some policies that were, were clearly in opposition to the biblical understanding of the faith. And, uh, and he was kind of fighting the policies and just getting really frustrated and, and feeling like he was fighting a losing battle. And he asked me this question. He said, I'm wondering if, if my mistake is trying to maintain the Christian identity of this institution, or should I learn what is it to live missionally in a non-Christian institution? And he was talking to me because as a missionary, he said, maybe I should have more of the thought of a missionary who doesn't expect the host culture to be Christian than to kind of try to fight for that. And I think that's the, the key question that, that we are faced as believers in this culture is, is which are we going to fight to, to maintain the culture? Or are we going to live missionally to invite people into a different uh, way of living? Well, certainly the mentality for many, many years, and we've seen this articulated at, at a national level, uh, be historically by the likes of, of a Jerry Falwell or the likes of a Pat Robertson and others, and that is that we there's a degree to which we have to fight to maintain the culture. Certainly that notion of being um, salt and light uh, makes sense at a degree. But I wonder if there's also a great degree, Jim, to which we kind of longingly look back toward a different time in America where we perceived it to be a Christian nation when, in fact, that's never really been entirely an, an accurate moniker for our country. And so it's almost as if we're, we're fighting to maintain something that, in the truest form, never really truly existed in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I have to ask that question. I know it, it's, it's not always popular to, to question that, but you think about that we sometimes do pine for the great years of the 50s when we were a Christian country, and yet... If you look at some of the things that were in place and the rules, some of the treatment of people in our country in the 1950s, I think all would agree it was far from Christian, um, especially look at some of the, the racial issues going on in our country at the time. So I think we, we sometimes have some selective memory. I, I don't mean to imply, therefore, there have been huge challenges, and certainly the, the Christian faith has fallen out of favor with the dominant culture. Uh, but I think sometimes in our, in our memory, or our, our selective memory, uh, we kind of pine for the yesteryear, and I, I really question, is that 
is that what God would have us do, or is he looking for us to forge what does it look like to be a Christian in today's context rather than trying to recreate yesterday's context? And is that maybe because it's just easier to fall back to that position? There's a lot less uh, demanded of us in doing so. I mean, let's face it, we'll, we'll talk to any generation and talk about the good old days and say, well, the, the good old days. Are we talking about the good old days of the Cold War in the 1980s? Would that be the good old days of the Vietnam War in the 1970s? Would it be the good old days of, of uh, the, the spread of communism and, and enslaving the people throughout Europe in the 1950s? the good old days of, of the 1940s during the Second World War? Which phase of the good old days are we referring to? So it, it seems as if you're right. It's not only a very selective memory, but sometimes maybe just simply an easier way to kind of default back to, because if mm-hmm. we can just um, vent our frustration over how things have changed, it really doesn't call upon us then to be engaged in the culture, to challenge the culture, to love the culture, to live, as you suggest, in a missional fashion, which means to understand that first and foremost, it is our job to be Christ's representatives on earth. And let's face it, there's a lot more work involved in doing that than just sitting back and complaining. I think so. And and, uh, one of my colleagues, Stan Self, uh, wrote recently, and I I love this quote, he says, when we as evangelicals are so disheartened over the state of the Church in America, what are we bemoaning? Do we mourn the loss of Orthodox gospel preaching, or do we mourn the loss of our privileged place in society? Hmm. And I think that's that's a hard question, but I think we need to ask honestly, what what are we upset about? Um, are we really upset about the truth teachings of Christianity and the transformation that the gospel brings, or are we frustrated because the the kind of position of being the dominant um, the dominant understanding of the culture that being Christian was a culturally good and acceptable thing? Is that is that really what we're we're losing? That that means there's a higher cost of the faith, and maybe we. We did sense thirty or forty years ago. Yeah, probably very true. And along with that, I think, uh, coincides this notion that, let's face it, missional living in a very unchristian or hostile environment, uh, and, and certainly Christians in China understand this, Christians in the Sudan, as we speak, understand what this is like, it comes at a higher cost. And so you're right. The question is, when we talk about paying the price, is the paying the price because we're being inconvenienced, or do we understand that our very faith itself requires us to pay a price, that there is a price for being counted amongst those that name Jesus as Lord and Savior. So maybe it's a good point for us to pause and engage in some introspection. You know, I use the Bruce Jenner story is kind of a jumping off point because everybody's been talking about it around the water cooler over the last 24 hours and many bemoaning this, this direction in which society seems to be headed. And yet, There is a bigger question here that remains unanswered for believers, and that is, um, do we long for the days of the Christian culture, or are we willing to influence the world around us? uh, To understand what it really means to live out our faith missionally in a non-Christian environment. Our conversation today with Jim Ramsey, Vice President of Mission Ministries. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our visit as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And our conversations with Jim Ramsey, Vice President of Mission Ministries at the Mission Society. We're talking about the challenges of living a missional life in modern-day America today. And, uh, Jim, certainly we've seen historically an effort in in trying to sort of uh, preserve uh, what 
America used to look like by means of changing laws in our country, certainly electing the right guy or gal to public office. And yet, in spite of those efforts that began in earnest in the 1970s and to a lesser degree, perhaps continue to this very day, uh, maybe we've slowed the demise towards uh, apostasy down, but certainly haven't prevented it or stopped it from happening, which maybe uh, maybe ought to call into question some of the methodology that we have used as believers uh, to to change society around us. And let me quickly add, I'm, I'm not suggesting here that we shouldn't try to be salt and light. We absolutely have, I believe, an obligation to do that. But at the core, if you want to change things, it really has to begin with changing the heart, doesn't it? I think so, and I and I would agree with with what you the kind of the caveat you said there is. I'm I'm certainly an advocate of Christians being involved in the public square. I think that that for us to isolate ourselves and say, well, you know, the whole country's going to going to pot, and we're just going to do individual evangelism and not care about who's elected, not care about what the issues are in a local in our local governments, our state governments, our federal government. I think that would be a big mistake. I think some of the question to me is the tone. Of, of the debate, I think sometimes evangelicals in these in these larger kind of culture wars, even the word culture war says something about about the approach. The, the tone is is very antagonistic. It, it's it's not attractive at all, and so really the only people that energize us are people who think like me. But it's not it's not going to be something that's going to make someone who who doesn't have faith really be interested in faith. And so I think we have to recognize that it's it's our lives and our our tone. Uh, that really is going to make a difference. And, and as you said, that's going to happen at the relational level. Uh, now, let, let's put this in context. And again, your background as uh, having spent uh, the better part of a decade as a missionary in Kazakhstan, I think uniquely qualifies you to, to speak to this point. When, when you travel there with your family as a missionary, you're going into a country that had been under the cloak of communism for many, many years. And so there's a good percentage of people that live in the country that, that were good students of Marx and Lenin who were atheists. You have a nation that is 60, maybe 70 percent Islamic, a good percentage, probably 20, 25 percent Russian Orthodox. And into that environment, you can you can certainly walk in and say, well, gee, you people don't think as I do. You don't believe as I do. What's the matter with you? Get your act together. I would suspect, though, that would not make you very effective as a missionary. So what are the lessons that you learned going into Cossack society, Jim, that, that you can maybe help us better understand what we as believers in America need to do in dealing with a different kind of culture and society in which we live today that, that equally we, we it, it's foreign to us to be sure and yet as in need of the good news of the gospel of our Savior in America today as, as it was when you served in Kazakhstan yeah I think that's, that's the, the key is that when we went to Kazakhstan we expected a different culture we didn't expect the host culture to behave as Christians we, we figured there was going to be good people obviously and there would be good people in government and everything but, but there's, there was no expectation but the host, the dominant culture, the government systems were going to be supportive of of the gospel, and so by losing that expectation, we weren't there to fight that battle, but we were there, as you said earlier, to win the hearts and and, and minds of people by living among them, by getting to know them, by being in discipling relationships, and planting the the community of faith there, and. And I think, I think the community of faith, when people are living in faith in community, studying the Word and praying together and loving one another, it's extremely subversive. Uh, it, it really begins to change the culture from within, as those people, as you said, become salt and light. But when we, we come at the culture in attack mode, then any time you go in attack mode, people go in defensive position, and that's, that's not going to be as appealing. 
So we, the, the difference is with the Kazakhstan, we knew that, we expected that. Somehow, because America has, we, we, we've got the understanding of the so-called Christian nation, we don't expect that here, and we get offended when we come up against a hostile government, a hostile host culture, rather than just saying that's the way it is. So I, that's one thing we can learn from people, either missionaries or national believers, who have lived in contexts where there is not, where Christianity is not the dominant the dominant culture. You use two words that are maybe key to this. You use the phrase discipling relationships. It's easy yeah. for us to enter into an environment that is not one that we believe is necessarily biblically based in nature and to launch into attack mode, meaning you shouldn't be going to mosque, you should be attending church with me on Sunday, etc., etc. I would imagine had that been your approach out the gate in Kazakhstan, you would not have been very successful at at, at changing hearts and minds. But engaging in... My visa would not have been renewed. I would imagine so. But, but engaging in discipling relationships, that also means that you have to be willing to roll up your sleeves and be in contact with people at a level in which you're able to speak truth into their life, and that really means gaining their trust, doesn't it? Absolutely. I think that's, that's the key, is, is gaining trust, putting ourselves intentionally in communities with people who are different than us, and that is, has not been traditionally part of the evangelical culture so much within America. We're good at that as missionaries, but our own culture here, I, I heard somebody once say, you know, take the cell phone test, um, look for your cell phone contact list, how many of those are not believers? Um, and so I think we we don't sometimes, but by putting ourselves intensely in community with people where we're just sharing life with them, as you said, that, that gains the, the trust and the relationship, but then we can begin to share who we are in Christ. And, and that's that really is the making fishers of men that, that Jesus invited his disciples to. So if we want to effectively influence culture around us, not only from the salt and preservative standpoint, but, but ultimately from the evangelical standpoint in, in winning people for Christ and growing the church, then it sounds like you're suggesting, Jim, that we need to kind of take on the same mentality that the missionary does as he or she is preparing to go overseas, meaning that you know that you're going into an environment that may be hostile in some ways toward your belief system and the way you worship and the way you think and the way you behave, maybe not understanding of many of those values and approaches, and yet you are going into their environment where they are the dominant language, the dominant culture. And so typically a missionary takes time to, at the very least, understand the culture, maybe even take time to understand the language. Certainly if you're going to live amongst them, that's that's critically important. And then you, you learn how to engage Engage people from where they're at. That doesn't mean that you embrace what they think or do. That doesn't mean that to, to reach a Muslim you become one. But it does, though, mean that you have to be, what, a little bit more open understanding in order to, to, to gain permission to speak truth into their life? I, I that's exactly right. I think that's, that's the key is, is taking your time, listening, learning, genuinely respecting, desiring to know people. You, nobody wants to be a target. <laughs> So if you say, you know, this person is a target of my evangelism, that, that basically takes away the relationship, and you never saw Christ do that. Christ always, the person in front of him was the, had the full, his full attention at the moment. And I think we sometimes lose track of that when, when we think that these are, these are people who need to be objects of our evangelism rather than, than, than uh, people who we are seeking relationship with, learning God together, and then trusting, if we really believe the gospel is truth, the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts, 
then we can kind of chill out <laughs> and just be in the relationship and, and let, let God do his work through us. Jim, I'm fascinated by this. Can you stay with us for one more segment? Sure. Uh, just stand by for a minute. We're going to come back right after a quick time out here. I want to get updated on some traffic before we get to too far afield. We've got Jim Ramsey with us, Vice President of Mission Ministries for the Mission Society. He spent 10 years with his family in Kazakhstan as a missionary and now is back here in the States, as we mentioned, um, uh, serving as Vice President of Mission Ministries for the Mission Society. And uh, he's written a recent article that caught my attention because it, I think, really calls into question uh, the way we live out our faith here in America. All of us know, you've read the headlines, you hear the stories, we know that the culture and the society in which we live is changing and continues to change. And let's face it, a lot of this is not a march uh, back toward historical Christian and biblical values, but quite frankly, uh, in just the opposite direction. And yet we see ourselves in the middle of a culture war, and we think that means we need to pick up our guns and start fighting the enemy. Uh, but, But who is the enemy here? And are they people that are, you know, again, notches on the holster? Oh, we won one more? Is that what we were? They're on a list, as Jim suggests? Or is it a matter of learning how to live out our faith missionally in an ever-increasing hostile non-Christian environment, in sort of that post-Christian environment that Francis Schaeffer spoke and wrote of, and, and, and to do so in understanding then ultimately what it means to to share our faith and to lovingly attract others to us. Hey, there's a new concept. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to the conversation. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, now, Craig, wait a minute now, guys. Let's let's be fair here. Uh, this is not going to work in American culture today. I mean, when you're talking about an environment in which there is so much hostility um, uh, towards Christianity, how can we ever hope to be successful at this? And yet, uh, Jim Ramsey, I have to point to what we see taking place with, let's say, the church in China today, where hostility, my goodness, exists not only institutionalized at the government level and local level, even by individuals in many villages and communities, where, let's face it, even even as we saw the spread of Christianity uh, here over the last 50, 60 years since the beginning of, of communism there, it's taken place without many of the so-called traditional trappings of, of um, uh, Christianity in the West, meaning they don't have open evangelistic meetings, they don't do uh, Christian radio or television, you can't openly preach. Uh, there's many things that we see as sort of the necessary tools of sharing the gospel in the West that are completely absent in a place like communist China, and yet the church there is growing by leaps and bounds in one of the most hostile environments possible. That suggests to me that this idea of of growing the church as we share our faith in a hostile culture or a hostile environment is, is not only quite possible, but is happening today. Absolutely, and I think if you look historically, the church often has has been strongest when it's persecuted. Now, you know, I'm I'm certainly not someone who's eager to see that happen here, but you're right. History shows that. I mean, look at the early church, just the very beginning. I mean, the church starts with these this ragtag group of disciples, certainly in an extremely hostile environment. I mean, I've not seen too many Christians in America have been taken out to the uh, the Colosseum and and given to the animals, and yet and yet. The church grew rapidly during those first couple hundred years, and it was because people were living out their faith in community in a very hostile environment, and people took notice of that. 
And so, um, and that is, you're right, that's exactly what we see in China. I heard a Chinese believer one time uh, said this. I, I wish I could attribute the quote to the right person. He said, yes, in China, we follow the Communist Party plan for, for church growth. <laughs> what the Communist Party plan for church growth? He said, yes. He says, we don't have seminary trained pastors. Um, we can't have more than 12 people meet together in, in a group. Um, and we can't depend on outside money. That the uh, the Communist Party's plan for church growth, <laughs> and of course and it's so been quite being a little bit facetious, but that that the church sometimes grows best when you have this very kind of tight knit community approach to church rather than the larger institutional approach to church. And you know we understand certainly the frustration. There are moments in time when we've all felt frustration with what we see taking place in our American culture today, and yet a hostile posture towards the culture is only going to be received by those in the culture as uh, Christians being hostile toward them. And it was always suggested, certainly as I've read uh, scripture, that the best way to attract people, that they will know us by our love, that we can attract others to the love of God by showing first the love of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think you, know, you started to say with the Bruce Jenner story, and I've not been following that closely. And, you know, it. I'll be quite honest, I have a hard time understanding that. But at the same time, my question is, should we expect Bruce Jenner to act like a believing evangelical Christian? And if not, then why should we be mad at him for making the choices he's made? Or, you know, are, are we mandated to love him where he is and then understand what does that look like? And this obviously raises a lot of questions that I'm, I'm myself struggling to say, what is, how does that look in a lot of these really complicated situations? But I think some of the basic problem we run into is we expect our dominant culture to behave like believers when the fact is most of them are not believers. And so we need to lose that expectation and say, what does it look like for us to act like believers in that setting? We hear a lot of the phraseology about uh, culture wars, or at war with the culture, things of this sort. And, and of course, those, some of those militaristic terms, I know, from the non-believer perspective, uh, really intimidates people, and it, it sets up a very false idea of not only who we as the church are, but quite frankly, who, who Christ is and, and what his character is. It runs very contrary into the image we see of Scripture. Now, again, I'm not saying that God is not about righteousness, and holiness. I'm not suggesting that we need to somehow pull back from uh, taking a strong stand when it comes to being salt and light. But when we talk about engaging the culture uh, from a missional standpoint, uh, and, and based on your experience in doing this, you know, uh, on a full-time basis in a full-time and mission environment, when we talk about it from that viewpoint, Jim, uh, some closing thoughts just in terms of how you see we as the church ought to be engaging the culture and society around Around us, as we can then be most effective in reaching others for Christ. Well, a couple of these I think are, are critical. One thing we we have got to regain the concept of community. We we somehow replaced community with with kind of church and Sunday school, which themselves are not bad things at all. Don't ever get me wrong on that. But that that sitting in a sanctuary for an hour on Sunday and maybe even going to a, um, a Sunday school class that morning is not replacing community. So I think we have to discover community because that's what people are hungry for. And are attracted to. So, so we need, first off, we need as believers to be living in community. Um, and then I think, secondly, understanding that, that discipleship is the model that Jesus and the disciples use to, to, to increase the church. And so finding those relationships where we can naturally live life with people, talk about life issues with people. Um, I don't find people are not resistant to spiritual discussions. They're resistant to spiritual formulas <laughs> where we try to trivialize the, the hard issues of life. But when we 
when we're willing to engage with people in, in hard issues of life from our faith perspectives rather than trivializing them or having pat formulaic answers, um, I've not found that people are close to that. Uh, so I think those are those are a couple things I say right off. It's just let's just be more attractive. And absolutely, I mean, I think it's. I'm glad there's believers who are in politics. I'm glad there's believers who are, are out in the public square, and we should pray for them and encourage them. Uh, but but I think the the militaristic language is is not helpful. And uh, it like you said, it does. It, it kind of spooks people because their idea of religious people already is kind of intolerant. People who want to you know restart the Spanish Inquisition. And so if they're already thinking that, and we just kind of add gas to that understanding, it's, it's not helpful. Well, and it seems to me it's the easy way out. I mean, any of us can, can, can quote chapter and verse and engage in a good hefty round of biblical browbeating and, and, and beat somebody into submission, and we feel good about ourselves afterwards because, by golly, we told them. And that doesn't really require much of our heart, nor our life, nor our time. It's something entirely different to engage in biblical love, whereas you talked about your experiences in Kazakhstan really engaged in discipling relationships. Well, my goodness, now that really that really calls uh, me out to, to, to engage more, to invest more of my heart and my life. And as I do so, of course, you ultimately become very more effective in, 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 in introducing your Jesus to others, and so I, I guess it really is the difference between do we just want to take the easy way out and engage in biblical browbeating or really engage in biblical love? You can certainly put it that way, absolutely. Well, Jim, we appreciate the insights. It's, it's a brilliant article, and I think one that uh, that really ought to cause all of us to pause and really take account of uh, what it means to live the missional life in America today in 2015. I'll point folks towards the website, uh, themissionsociety.org. That's themissionsociety.org, or maybe just do a Google search. You'll wind up finding it. The article is called Living Missionally in a Post-Christian Context. And our thanks to Jim Ramsey, Vice President Mission Ministries for the Mission Society for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. When you think of it, so much of life has become temporary. There are those of us with a little bit of gray around the temples, old enough to remember the fact that, well, today, no longer do you collect gold watches after, say, 25 or 30 years of service to one company. We no longer raise families and retire in the same home where we spend ultimately 50 or more years in. And our marriages, well, they no longer make it to what was once a typical golden anniversary. Many of these challenges in the way life has changed, particularly related to marriage, goes down to one core issue that is becoming increasingly more challenging under the changes in society today to establish and maintain solid marriage relationships. But before we completely give up hope, there are some important key steps that you can today implement in your married life to change things around in a most dynamic and God-honoring fashion. Joining me now is Dr. Greg Smalley, Executive Director of Marriage and Family Formation at Focus on the Family. And Dr. Smalley, great to have you on the program. Hey, Craig. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, isn't it amazing how so much of life in just, you know, maybe a generation or two has changed so dramatically. Remember Dad working for the same company for 30-something years? They still live in the same house that I was raised in when I was a kid. And today, all of this has changed. We don't keep our jobs as long, we don't live in the same house as long, and sadly, we don't stay in marriages as long either. Yeah. It, it's true. 
And I tell you what, you know, way back in the seventies, through the, the I, I think the one of the biggest things is the whole no fault divorce, and uh, I, I don't think people really realize um, how much that has really hurt us, and 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 I, that's why I'm thrilled as a country that right now, you know what, marriage is 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 in the news all over the place, and I'm hoping that part of the outcome will be that we really. You know uh, that that we realize, like Hebrews thirteen four says that marriage should be honored by all. That that we really learn as a country again. How do we honor marriage? What is that going to look like? Here's the absolute irony. You talk about no fault divorce, and what we're really saying is, well, if it's nobody's fault, then it must be everybody's fault. Right. Uh, we we all play a role in this, and toward that end, you've come up with some key steps that I think we can go to school on today to help people better understand the important relational moments. And you know, we know that that good marriages take time and they take work, but if you begin to break it down into all of the the incremental elements, a lot of this stuff, quite frankly, is just good common sense if we just take the time enough to examine it and begin putting it into practice in our daily relational lives. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I believe one of the best things that we can do for our marriage is that we've got to learn how to work through and manage conflict. You know, there's a lot that we need to do for marriage, but if we started there, because it's inevitable, it's going to happen. You know, you can't take two people, you know, who have different personalities and genders and, and all these things and, and expect that they're not going to bump into each other, that they're not going to, you know, have conflict. They're not going to hurt and, 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 and wound each other. And, and, and the problem that I see is that so many people are, are, you know, are afraid to go through conflict. They avoid it. They sweep it under the rug. They, they, they want to ignore it. And, and the truth is that conflict can be used in our marriage to strengthen our marriage. That's when I get to learn more about my wife, her feelings, her needs. I get to learn more about myself, you know, and, you know, maybe it, it shows something's going on in our marriage that needs to change. I mean, conflict really is a good thing if we can learn how to do this in, in, in a healthy way. And, and this is so key, because what you're suggesting then, Dr. Smalley, is that, in, and oftentimes we'll couch this in terms of, well, I can't get along with my wife because, and we, you know, we'll pile a bunch of baggage there, or, or the husband, whatever the case might be, suggesting that there's some sort of a, a personality defect here. But what you're really talking about, and I took note of the fact, you didn't say avoid conflict, you said manage it, right. be able to work through it. So this isn't a, a personality defect, it's a skill deficit. Right, absolutely. Yeah, because I think a lot of times we use the phrase even conflict resolution. And I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't think the goal is to try to figure out some resolution so much as it is the process. Can we develop a process that we can use anytime conflict comes up? So whether we resolve it or not, it's not the issue. I think it's how we do it. And unfortunately, most couples do this in a way that just doesn't work. And one of the biggest things that I see with couples is that we're taught to when we get into an argument, when we get hurt, when there's a problem, that we need to just hang in there and power through it and try to talk it through. And I think that is the biggest and worst advice that you can you can give a couple. Because one, I don't think it works. When when you're hurt, when you're wounded, when you're upset, when you're frustrated with your spouse, what I think is going on is you get these buttons of yours, these emotions get pushed, these buttons get pushed, and then your your heart literally kind of closes. You shut down, and then you just start reacting. And, and, and in that mode, 
There is no way that you're listening. You're not able to hear. You're not able to understand. And that's why when people are in an argument, they need to kind of separate from each other. They need to take a break, a time out from each other. But I'm telling you, Craig, we're not taught to do that. We are taught to try to power through it. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. I mean, it's, it's setting people up for massive failure. And that's really what, what I did in the book was to try to show you here's a process. Because I, what, what I love is that if you take a break and work on you first, you need to learn how to get your heart back open. Because when people have open hearts, we're able to talk all day long. And this is so key because, you know, I would imagine in, in your role as executive director of the Marriage and Family Formation at Focus on the Family, you're hosting a nationally syndicated radio talk show. You've got patients. You've written books, the whole nine yards. Yeah. That you talk and hear from people all the time, this whole issue of conflict. It sounds to me that this is this is perhaps then less about conflict. At the end, it it's not this major difference between the two of us. In fact, we both both sides of the marriage really want the same thing, don't we? That yeah. is, to 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 the, the right to be heard and the need to hear. Right. We want that. You know, people want connection. We want we want to be connected. We want intimacy. You know, we we want to be heard, understood, listened to, like you were talking about. And it's a sadly. What happens is that in that moment that we're hurt or in conflict or whatever it is, that that we're, we're, we we are just taught to tr- keep trying to to push through that, and 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 it doesn't work. That's why one of my very favorite verses is in Matthew seven two through five. It says, "Why do you look at the dust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the log in your own eye?" And I love that the scriptures give an order. It says, first, first, get the log out of your your own eye, then." You can see clearly. And, and how I relate that back to conflict is saying, okay, when, when you're in the middle of an argument, you have to understand that your heart has now closed. You are shut down. And when you are shut down, you are more likely to, to react, to say things, to do things, to retreat, you know, in, in a way that, that's not going to help you get to where you want to be. Therefore, quit trying to talk this through first. That's part two. Part one is that I need to go off by myself and, and figure out what is going on. I need to let my emotions settle down. I need to, you know, for me, you know, prayer is such a great time to, to just to settle down, to get God's perspective, to say, hey, God, I don't know what's going on, but boy, I'm, I'm mad about something. What, what, what is the button that got pushed? You know, what, how, how do you want me to, to treat my wife? You know, you created her. Help me to understand her. You, you see what I'm saying? I mean, if you work on you first, and get your heart back open, see, then you can come back into that conversation. And, it, and, and I promise you, it will go so much differently. We fail at communicating through conflict because usually both hearts are closed. And, and you just can't talk through that. And, and so often, though, we also, uh, Dr. Smalley, put so many expectations and demands on the other. Oh, yeah. That we can't control. And yet what we can control... We do nothing with. So if we're concerned, for example, about the fact that we feel as if we're not being heard, our spouse is not hearing me, and yet we've closed down and we're so focused on what we're not getting that we ourselves are not hearing our spouse either. Right. Well, one is an observation, but the other is something that I can actively change and that I have 100% control over. Totally. I mean, that's again, I can can control me. I can choose how I want to show up. And, and, and that's why I, I say to people, you've, you've got to have a break. 
you just got to step away. Tell your spouse, you know what? Right now, I can't think clearly. I'm shut down. I'm going to go, but I'll be back. And 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 that's I think that's the the what we do to then set up the opportunity to really to work through conflict. If I can get my heart back open, see now I'm. I, and I tell people, you, you well, you know how your heart is open is when you want to be a listener, when you are willing to be a listener. I love in the in the Chinese language. There's the 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 character, the symbol for the verb to listen is made up of three kind of little characters that come together. One stands for eyes, one for ears, and the other for open heart. Isn't that cool? Mm. So to to listen is with your ears, your eyes, and your open heart. That's the evidence to me that you're ready to enter back into that conversation, that dialogue with your spouse when you are going. I want to I want to seek to understand you rather than me being understood. Dr. Greg Smalley is with us today. He, of course, Executive Director of Marriage and Family Formation at Focus on the Family. Information, too, on the web at smalleymarriage.com. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as this edition of Lifeline with Dr. Greg Smalley continues here on KFAX. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 